This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them, Behold, the champion, the Philistine of God, Goliath came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You were not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you were but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. 
And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ready and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine, the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, it's so good to be back. Uh, I've been gone for four months, and so um, I took a sabbatical, which was a gift from y'all, and I'm very thankful. And um, it was also a gift uh, from Austin, and so um, very thankful to you in particular. And uh, heard his sermons in Hebrews, and they're excellent, and uh, just really grateful for all that uh, that you did for the church for me. Um, yes. Absolutely. Um, and last week, Austin also uh, opened the sermon series on the life of David, um, which we're going to be starting. We started last week. We're going to be going all the way through Thanksgiving. And the life of David spans the books of First and Second Samuel. So we're starting right in the middle of First Samuel. And um, the life of you know, King David is not like an episode of This American Life. It's a, an interesting story about a, a guy who did a lot of fascinating things. It's it's more like um, a theology of kingship. That's really what it's about. So as we talk about David, just remember that the, the accent in all of these sermons and all these stories is, is not so much on this man, this human being, but it's on the king. It's, it's who, is, who is the real king? Uh, what is a real king like? What is God's king like? And um, kings are a very complicated and difficult subject both in political theory in general and also in the Bible. Um, in the Bible, it's not clear exactly the status of what a king is like. Uh, for instance, um, Israel was not meant to have a king. Uh, in Israel, God was supposed to be the king. And so when, uh, when Israel wanted a king, uh, God took that as a rejection of his own kingship. 
And I don't think that uh, even in the Garden uh, of Eden in paradise, God meant for there to be a king. Uh, and so the very fact there is one is a, um, a kind of Israel's attempt to be like the empires around them. They wanted to be like the Egyptian empire that had a Pharaoh or the Babylonian empire that had Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, they wanted to be like these empires around them. So this very desire to have a king is sinful. And yet God is going to use that sin as he uses all sin. And he's going to bring redemption through, through the kingship. And um, so when God liberated Israel from Egypt, they wanted to go back to the empire and have a pharaoh. And uh, when God brought them out, he tried to create a, a system of tribes that were everyone was equal. No king, uh, no hierarchy. And they didn't want that. They wanted a king. They wanted to go back to Egypt in a sense. And so God then said, well, here is Saul. And he gave them Saul. He gave them what they wanted. And God does that uh, throughout the scriptures. Almost as a punishment is, is to give your desires, your, uh, the desires you have that are destructive, he gives you into your own desires. And that's what he's doing here with Saul. And if you read the first um, 16 chapters of 1 Samuel, you realize that did not work out well at all. Uh, that Saul was, uh, was a, a, a king like the empire, that he ruled by the strength of his arm. He was very tall. He was very handsome. He was an imposing figure. Uh, he ruled by glamour and military prowess. I think of him like, if you were going to cast Saul, he'd be like Chris Hemsworth. He looked like Thor. And uh, he, he would boast like Thor. He'd be kind of silly like that. That's, uh, that's the way I picture Saul. And that, as I said, did not work well. And so then God says, I'm going to show you the kind of king that I would choose. And um, then you have this episode uh, that Austin preached on that happens at the house of this man named Jesse. And so this man named Samuel, who is a, um, who is a judge and a prophet, goes to Jesse's house and says, God told me that one of your sons is going to be king. And Jesse says, oh, well, it's going to be, you know, Aminadab, the oldest, the strongest. And Samuel says, no, it's not him. God's telling me it's not him. So he brings out Eliab, who's in this story, too. And, and Samuel goes, no, God's not. No, it's not him either. So he brings out all these sons, all the sons. And Samuel says, well, do you have any other sons? Because it's none of these. And then Jesse uh, says, well, there is this guy who's out in the pastures. But surely, it's, surely you don't. He's like tiny. Uh, he's the runt of the litter. You do not want David. And, um, but sure enough, he finally, Samuel says, I want David. And he brings him. And he's this tiny little thing. Who knows how old he is? Maybe eight. And God says, that's the one. He's the king. And so you can see right there the contrast with Saul and David. And Samuel anoints David. And this is kind of secret. This is in secret. This is happening while Saul is the king. It's like this subversive anointing. And when you anointed someone, it's like I, when I baptize a child, you take a big scoop of oil and you, you put it on the head of this eight-year-old boy. And it's not petroleum, it's, it's olive oil. So it's not the kind of oil you pump out of a gas. It's, a, it's, it's olive oil. And olive oil was, was fuel for light, lotion for skin, medicine for healing. It made food taste better. And so olive oil uh, was one of those things, I mean, sugar is not the best comparison, but it's something like that that you love today. Like an avocado. I love avocados. Something that's just everybody, delicious thing, or bread, really fresh baked bread. So God is using oil as a symbol of his Holy Spirit. And he pours oil on this little child. 
And it says in 1 Samuel 16, 13, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And so the point is, this king is not like this king. This king is, an, is animated and rules by the purposes of the Holy Spirit on earth. Not like Saul, not like the empire. It's a different kind of king. He's not like Pharaoh. He's not like Thor. He's not like some macho Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, um, who, you know, whoever, um, current leader, some current leader. He's not like that. Um, he is a, a king uh, that is anointed. And, and the anointed, anointed actually is the word um, Messiah, Mashiach in, in Hebrew. So you see where that's going, is that he is the anointed and he is the forerunner of the Messiah. Because the Messiah is the fully anointed. Jesus said, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, uh, for he has filled me to preach good news to the poor and liberty to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind. So Jesus was animated by the spirit in the same way that his great, 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 great grandfather David was. So what I want to look at uh, tonight is the, the empire, the strength of the empire. And guess what? The, the strength of the kingdom. So those two things, empire, kingdom. Um, verse 19 Saul and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Now you've got to know about the Philistines. They show up a lot in 1st and 2nd Samuel. The Philistines lived along the Mediterranean on the coast. Uh, between, uh, they were between the Mediterranean Sea and the hills. You had the Philistines. And then you had the Israelites right next to them. So imagine if California tried to invade Nevada. That's the way, and that wouldn't make any sense, would it? That you have a more powerful, sophisticated state over here invading this other state. And uh, that's the way the Philistines were. They kept invading Israel, even though Israel was a little, tiny, unsophisticated nation. Uh, the Philistines wanted to take them over, so they keep invading. In fact, the Valley of Elah is in Israel, so they've already made some headway into Israel. And it's this beautiful, grassy plain between these two hills. You can... Type that into uh, Google and see a picture of where this happened. It's a real place. Interesting thing about the Bible, that the places in the Bible are real. Um, they're not like Asgard. Um, they're, they're, they're real places. They're not like Mount Olympus. It's an actual historical book. So this is, the, this is all happening in the Valley of Elah. And the Philistines have a secret weapon, uh, which they bring out onto the field of battle, namely uh, Goliath of Gath. And he, in verse 4, which is not, was not read, but if you have a Bible, you can go back and look at it. Uh, look at 1 Samuel 17, 4, if you have a Bible. He was three meters tall. So when people ask me how tall I am, I always say I'm two meters tall, just so that people have to think about it. Um, and uh, so imagine another third of me. And back then, people were shorter. So he is much, much taller than David. Uh, very, very tall. He had a bronze helmet, which was very sophisticated at bronze back then. He had 125 pounds of scale armor. Um, I mean, for even for me to carry 125 pounds, that would be very hard at all to carry it. He's got that just as his armor. He has a huge bronze javelin, as big as a weaver's beam. And the tip of that javelin is 15 pounds. So imagine throwing a, a, a javelin with a tip is 15 pounds. Um, that's how strong and big this guy. He's like, he's unbeatable. And by all outward appearances, Israel is in desperate trouble. In fact, uh, Goliath taunts them in verse 8. Again, not, was not read. Carolyn didn't read this. But it says, why do you even come out and line up for battle against me? So he's taunting them. 
Why do you, why do you even show up? Why are you even showing up? I was playing in a, a rec league once, and we had a team. It was a weaker team than the other teams in the rec league. And someone said, you know, why are y'all even out here? What, what do you even, you got no business being on this court with us. And it was that kind of thing. Goliath's like, why, why are you even fighting me? There's no chance at all that you could beat me. In the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible right there, uh, this is what Goliath says. So if, you're, if you have one right now, then you can turn to that page and look at this story. Goliath says, cowards, your God can't save you. I will rip off your head and have you on toast. So that's not what it says in the Bible, but that's a good translation of what Goliath says in the Bible. I'll rip off your heads and have you on toast. So uh, if you notice, Saul reacts uh, with fear. Uh, He cowers before Goliath. Again, this is in verse 11. This is earlier. But it says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Because for Saul, it's just human strength against human strength clashing, and Goliath has more of it than he does. And so in the empire's calculations, if Goliath has more strength than I do, then I'm dead. And there's no way I'm going to win this battle. Because by all outward appearances, Goliath is much stronger than I am. So what what am I going to do? I'm dead. And um, this is the way the empire works. This is the way that the world works is we, we make calculations. Are you stronger than me or am I stronger than you? And if I'm stronger than you, then I boast. I'm confident. I feel superior. And if you're stronger than me, then I feel inferior and I cower and I flee. Like this, dismayed and terrified. And if you look in verse 43... Um, you see more of that boasting. When you feel like you're stronger than your opponent, you boast in very creative ways. And I love this line. Uh, Goliath says to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Um, in other words, what he's saying there is I'm embarrassed to have to fight you. you know, am, I, am I some little kind of terrier that you're coming at me with these sticks, this little nobody? He feels like uh, he's, that David is so bad in comparison that it's humiliating for Goliath to even have to have this battle. And that's how the empire works. When you think you're stronger than someone, uh, when you think you're smarter than them, or more attractive than them, or cooler than them, uh, better at your job, better at basketball, um, in that setting, you feel, you might not boast out loud, you might not say, am I a dog that you come me with sticks, but in your heart you would say, am I a dog that you come me with sticks, and you feel superior. And um, it's a great feeling, you know, that, that uh, feeling of empire strength is really intoxicating for a while. But if you find someone stronger than you and smarter than you and better at your job, better at basketball, then you flip and you're not boasting anymore. You're cowering in fear because that's how the empire works. And so in verse 24, it says all the men of Israel, when they saw Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. So as he comes out to the valley of Elah, the Israelites who are down in the plains all run back up to the hills. They flee, all of them flee before him. And so that's what uh, empire strength, if you're basing your identity on your external attributes, then you're going to flee and be dismayed and be much afraid when you compete with someone that's stronger than you. And so, you know, maybe you won't join that group because that group makes you feel small. Or you won't uh, take that class because that class is supposed to be hard and I can't handle being in a hard class and there's smarter people than me in there. I'm not going to take that class. Or you won't play that game because in that game, like that, the competition is way too tough. I'm not going to play in that game. 
makes you uh, a coward. You won't apply for a certain job, a certain school. You won't try out for a team because you're like, there's no way. Uh, You feel inferior and you cower. I've been writing a book uh, this summer on sabbatical and um, I started reading. I was feeling good about my book until I read my friend's book, which just came out. And uh, when I read his book, I stopped writing my book and I kind of fled and cowered because when you, uh, you know, when you're matching strength on strength, that's just how it works. When you come up against something better, you stop. Uh, Think about Eliab. I love that he gets a mention here. This is uh, David's older brother who got passed over by Samuel. So you can imagine Eliab has some burning resentment about that. That happened about a decade earlier. He hates David for being so brave and so bold. And so he, he joins in Goliath's taunting. And he says in verse 28, why have you come down to the battle? David was up with the sheep. He ran down to bring provisions. Now he's down in the battle. David's getting excited about beating Goliath. Eliab can't stand it. Why have you come down to the battle? And with whom have you left your few sheep? Again, it's a taunt. And he's making fun of his little brother because, you know, Eliab is a tough guy. He's in the army. He's got his big shield. He's got his armor. He's got his big muscles. But now he is cowering in fear before Goliath. Meanwhile, David uh, seems like he's not even aware that there's a strength difference going on here. He seems like entirely naive of the fact that he is three times shorter and probably nine times lighter and unable to even carry that spear, uh, he has no, no fear at all. And he says in verse 26, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And uncircumcised, you notice he keeps saying that throughout the whole story? That's emphasizing the fact that Goliath uh, has defied God. Um, circumcision was a sign like baptism, that marked you as somebody who was part of God's people that had submitted to God's rule. And uh, uncircumcision was a way of describing someone who was not that way. He was proud and boastful. And so that's what David's saying. He is not, he's not defying me or you, Saul, or even Israel. He's defying God. He's uncircumcised. So who, that's, that's his boast. And, I mean, you can imagine how horrible it would be for your little sibling, your little sister, your little brother, someone you feel superior than, uh, showing you up that badly. I mean, how, how awful would that be? Those of you who are older siblings, if your little brother or sister showed you up like that, um, you, can, you can understand Eliab's anger because David's strength makes no sense to him. And it drives him crazy because he's so small and he's so weak and yet he's so confident. And it makes no sense to the empire when a person has the kind of strength that the kingdom has. And uh, if you go back to when Samuel picked David, so flip back one chapter earlier, 1 Kings 16, 7. God tells Samuel this, do not consider the appearance or the height of these boys I'm going to bring to you. Don't look at their outward IQ, you know, their dress, the way they dress, their shoes. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearances. The Lord looks at the heart, which means he, he looks in, inside. He looks at character. He looks at humility. He looks at love. He looks at compassion. He looks at forgiveness. He looks at the love of a person capable of loving God. And that's what God looks at. Nothing you can see externally. Nothing you can look around in this room right now and see about a person. God doesn't look about us. Those are not things he looks at. But just think about how much we get caught up, like Samuel did, 
and looking at people from uh, an outward point of view. You know, Paul says, uh, from now on, we regard no one according to an earthly point of view. Because one time I regarded Christ that way, Paul says, and I hated him because he was crucified. And now I realize he is the Messiah. And so I'm not going to look on anyone else the rest of my life that way. I'm not going to judge anyone by anything about themselves externally. That's what Paul says. But in the empire, it's like um, you have those barcodes, like a supermarket where they take the barcode and they scan uh, the item. Well, it's actually the laser is the, the red thing. And the, the barcode is on the item. And they scan that barcode. And it immediately shows you the price and the name of the product. And that's the way we often treat people. We, like, scan them and quickly sum them up. It might not be that fast. It might be, like, a minute or two minutes of scanning. But that quick zip of the eyes of the other person, their body and their face and their clothes and their car and their bumper stickers. Bumper stickers uh, are a big one. Uh, you can try to figure out a person through their bumper stickers or their shoes. Uh, someone I know once said that they can figure out exactly how much wealth a person has by looking at their shoes. And they were really good because they, um, they, were, they were doing it you know, to me right as they, as they were watching people who they knew with their shoes. So that is the, uh, the way of outward appearance. Um, the way of judging a person by things that you can quickly see. Like my freshman roommate at college, we wrote letters to each other. They did that. I don't know if they still do that, but we wrote letters to each other. And he mentioned he liked Foreigner. And if you don't know Foreigner, they're like Journey from the 80s. And immediately I, I said, that's the worst band that has ever written a song. And so I had an immediate negative perception of this guy. Uh, I wrote him off. I really did. And uh, the Empire just loves things like they love to rank things and compare things. You know, the, the U.S. News and World Report top 25, 27, 25, 27, top 25 schools. Um, we visited Emory because my daughter's looking at colleges. And uh, it's number 21, by the way, as we were told. And the admissions director came out and he kept talking about them being a top tier school. And uh, he said, of course, we don't care about that at all. Uh, but just so you know, and we're a top tier school. And he kept talking about it. He kept using the phrase top tier. And um, he talked about Jimmy Carter and the Dalai Lama being on the faculty there. And apparently they were like the only place that would take Ebola patients. Um, and all these great things, the $7 billion endowment and all the greatness of uh, Decatur and Atlanta. And um, it made me really sick. I was just, I was judging him as he was being judgmental. I was like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He should defy the armies of the Lord of hosts. But, um, of course, I was judging him. And sometimes the church, like, flips this whole thing in a very weird way. Where um, we just purchased a new car. So a moment of silence for the old white van. Terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, we got a new car, and we were um, talking to the sales lady, and we were kind of frustrating her because we were saying, like, I like the price of that one, but uh, there, there are a lot of bells and whistles, and we don't really want that. And she was like, okay, here's this one. She's like, I like the look of that, but uh, th- those leather seats are, are, like, really fancy, and we don't want that. She showed us another one. Like, we said, I like, I like the mileage of that, but it's not old enough. Because, and so she was like, are you saying that you don't like nice cars? Or, like, is What's going on there? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. So, you know, we have this old car righteousness thing where we've got to drive something that doesn't seem too ritzy. And she paused and was like, that's too deep for me. I can't help you there. 
But the point is, even though we're like kind of flipping it on its head, as we Christians do, it's still all about outward appearances. So I got a Ferrari, and now you can't, you can't judge me I have a really nice car. But um, the empire strength is the boast of Goliath in verse 44, where he says, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds. And the kingdom strength is completely opposite in verse 45, where David says, You come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And you can imagine that Goliath was as mystified as that that salesperson uh, at CarMax, um, because he did not understand what was going on. Who is this person with their little slingshot that is coming at me? Completely took him off guard. But kingdom strength is, of course, is faith. It is um, looking into the reality of things that you can't see. Hebrews describes faith as the reality of what we hope for and the perceptions of things we cannot see. And that's what, that's what David had. He says in verse 47, The Lord saves not with sword or spear or whatever you want to put in there. We don't use swords and spears. Gun, bomb, missile, tank, any other sign of strength. That's not how the Lord rescues or saves. The battle is the Lord's. And faith is counting on God uh, when everything looks like it's stacked against you. And I'm sure you're all in a place right now in your life where there's something that you're up against that is too big for you. And your resources do not equal that problem that you're up against. And this is what this story is about, is having faith in times like that. There's something bigger than your resources. There's something invisible out there. Even when you're about to die. I mean, this is, this is the day of David's death, as far as everyone in Israel is concerned. He was going out there and he was going to be killed by this Goliath guy. But faith gives David the boldness to say in verse 32, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And it's so strong that he actually encourages the king. I mean, just picture that. An 18-year-old shepherd boy, like, you know, giving Saul a side hug and patting him on the shoulder. And like, I'll pray for you, man. I know that you're scared. Verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of him. David is encouraging Saul that it's going to be okay. That's the faith of this little shepherd boy. And um, Saul is relying again on this little tiny slice of visible light. You know, this tiny part of the electromagnetic spectrum that's huge. He is saying, based on that, verse 33, you are but a youth and he is a man of war. And all Saul can see is actual visible things and and sounds. He He doesn't look into what is really real, which is... The divine reality behind all things. And David says in verse 37, The Lord has delivered me over and over again from the lion and the bear. Things much greater than I am. And so he will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And David is looking at invisible strength. So are you looking at the visible or the invisible in your calculations about things? Because David and Saul are completely different. Here. And there's a, there's a wonderful story in 2 Kings 6. Uh, a later book in the Bible where uh, the prophet Elijah and his servant are surrounded by a foreign army. And they're going to die. It's kind of like with Goliath. There's no doubt but that they're going to die. And the, uh, the servant is terrified. And he's cowering. And he says to Elijah, oh my master, what are we to do? And then Elijah says, don't be afraid. 
Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Which is a mysterious one because he's looking, he's like, there's two of us and there are hundreds of them. How, what are you talking about? And then Elijah prays and he says, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. The Lord opens the eyes of the servant and this is the line. He saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire. And if you've ever seen that movie, it's based on that verse that... Uh, There is an invisible reality out there, and surely it's not a real horse, it's not a real chariot, but there's something out there bigger than what you see right now. And if you're a skeptic, a science-minded person, you know, you're agnostic or maybe an atheist, and this is very strange to you, just remember that, um, as my friend was telling me yesterday, you know, like, well well over 99% of, of, of a single atom is nothing, is nothing. And then if you study quantum mechanics at all, you realize it's even stranger than that. And, uh, and so what I'm saying is that uh, no one should, even if you're a scientist, shouldn't judge on, on the visible. Like it's, it's far more confusing and complex than we think. And so to think that there are other realities at work, like chariots of fire, is not so crazy as you might at first think. Uh, verse 47, I think, is the heart of the matter. The Lord saves not with swords and spears. And years ago, I circled that in my Bible, the Lord saves, and I put a little line out and said, uh, theme of the whole Bible. I was looking at that the other day. The Lord saves. That's what the whole Bible's about. And in this case, the Lord saves not with sword, not with spear. That's what he does. He's been doing that for millennia. He's not going to stop. He's not going to just change direction. He's not going to change his M.O. now. He's not going to suddenly get into a new habit of saving with sword and spear. He's always done it without sword and spear, and he's going to continue to do it in your life without sword and without spear. And he saves in weakness. He saves in ways that are tricky, in ways that we could never guess. In this case, look at verse 49. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, he slung it, It struck the Philistine right in the only place that would have killed him in his forehead. Because he had a helmet on that probably protected almost everything but that. It hit him right in the forehead. The stone stone sank into his forehead. And he fell on his face to the ground. And again, that's that's not good aim. That's not like he was a a great... I mean, I'm sure he was good at throwing stones. But um, that's more than that. This is the way the Lord saves. Without sword, without spear... um, it's, it's, uh, it's faith. It's all faith. That it's not you. It's nothing, it's no skill you have. If it was about the skill of David, that would defeat the whole point of the story. It's not about our skill. Not about our ingenuity. Not about our ways of figuring things out. Uh, it's about God's salvation. Verse 46, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and all the earth will know that there's a God in Israel. There's something evangelistic about this where David is saying... I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to do it in such a way that everyone knows that God did this, not me. And again, that's what faith is about, where you boast in your weakness. You boast in God's strength. It's like a little child uh, saying to a bully, if my dad were here, you'd be in big trouble. It's this confidence that that someone is watching over you who is stronger than you. Uh, An invisible force, a person. And that your strength gets you nowhere. And that God's strength makes you soar. And fly. Because there's this interesting uh, contrast between uh, 38 and 48. If you look at those two verses, you notice that the, um, 
the strength of the empire just weighs David down. It's kind of humorous how uh, Saul tries to put his armor on David. And it's kind of like when Roosevelt, my daughter, used to put my size 15 shoes on uh, and my T-shirt and just like just covered and could barely even move. You know, that's the way I picture David in verse 38. Uh, he got Saul's helmet on. He got his coat of mail on. And in verse 39, David's like, uh, I don't think I can go with these. This is not going to work at all. I can barely move you. Because the strength of the empire just does not work. Uh, it doesn't coexist well with faith. It doesn't coexist with the strength of the kingdom. And in verse 48, you have the completely different mode of operations. David ran quickly with no armor, with no spear, no sword. He ran quickly. He met the Philistine at the battle line. He's flying with the strength and the power of faith. And nothing lifts you like faith, uh, like the strength of the kingdom. Because the point is not about the faith, it's about the king that you have the faith in. It's about the kingdom that you have the faith in. And um, David says in verse 47 something that he doesn't even fully know what he's saying. When he says that the Lord saves with sword and spears, he's thinking about Yahweh. Uh, He's thinking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the world. He knew a lot about God. He knew there was one God. He knew God was all-powerful. He knew that God knew everything. He knew that God was uncreated, that God made everything out of nothing. He knew all these things, but he didn't know nearly as much as what you know and what I know, which is that when it says, the Lord saves not with swords and spears, that that means a lot more than just that he saves invisibly. That there's a certain way he saves that is like anti-sword. It's not just that not sword, it's like anti-spear. He has an anti-spear, anti-sword way of saving. Because we know that uh, David's Lord is the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah, Christ. It's the word for Christ. And that actually the Lord that he was talking about there that saved is his son, the son of David. Is Jesus Christ, God incarnate. God took the desire of Israel for a king that was sinful, and he redeemed that. And he sent a king, the son of David. A, a king that is not like any empire king at all. Because Satan said to Jesus, the Messiah, he said, I can give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus said, no way, I'm not doing it that way. And then Peter said, I'm not letting you go to the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And Peter pulled out a sword to cut off the ear uh, of this warrior who was coming to attack Jesus. And Jesus said, put away the sword. That's not how I'm going to do this. Not by sword, not by spear. Uh, I am going to defeat the empire, not by killing with sword and spear, but by being killed, being impaled. He was impaled. Uh, They punctured him with a spear when he died. And this is the thing, this is the inversion of the kingdom that's so amazing is that uh, he saves not by using a sword or using a spear, but by being attacked himself with a sword and spear and absorbing all of our evil, absorbing all of our hate. If you notice, it says in verse 8 that, um, well, it's not in the passage we read, but if you look back at verse 8, it basically says, uh, when David wins, his people win. Because Goliath says, uh, if, if you win, we're going to all become your subjects. But if we win, you're going to all become our subjects. So it's like in that one person, 
in that one person's victory, they all win. And so when Jesus won the victory uh, over the empire on the cross, not only did he win that victory, but we all won it with him. He was our representative. He was our hero. Uh, Archegos is the word that the book of Hebrews uses. He is our superhero who wins the battle for us. You know, like Iron Man in uh, the, the Avengers Endgame. He wins the battle uh, in a way that is shocking. And uh, he stands for them all. And when Jesus wins the battle in his particular way, he wins it and we win it in him. And he won it uh, at this table where he defeated the real Goliath, the, uh, the real emperor, Satan, uh, the deceiver, um, the devil. We um, were walking today uh, on the way home from the bagel station by the Jewish synagogue, and there was a piece of paper. There's a little Holocaust memorial right there uh, near the Jewish synagogue on the way down that street, Oakwood. And there was a piece of paper on it, and it said, A Green Future for White Children. And we saw that there was, a, there was a swastika in the background. And so, you know, immediately my friend tore it off. I was like, get that, we got to get that thing off of it. It was just evil. It was, like, terrifying, just the evil of that thing right there. And uh, it just made me think about this meal and how um, that level of hatred and that level of evil is... The potential is in all of us for that. And it's, you know, we've said to each other, we were like, how many people in Winston would really do that? I mean, are there like a hundred people that would do that? Or are there a thousand? And I thought, well, really, it's kind of everyone. If the circumstances were right. Uh, the Bible would say that all of our hearts have that potential for hate in them. And superiority. Because the empire is in all of us. And so this meal is an absolute miracle of love. Where he takes all that hate into himself um, and defeats the empire for us um, on, on the night that he was betrayed. And so on that night, when um, you know, he received the greatest hate crime.